0: Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you're about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcast, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Well this morning we are finishing Matthew chapter 12 and so we'll pick up in verse 38 where we left off last week. Now you remember what's going on at this point is that uh, Jesus has withdrawn uh, to avoid confrontation uh, with Pharisees but ends up in confrontation with them nevertheless because he heals a demon possessed man who is blind and mute. And such a a miracle is causing the people to say, can this be the son of David? And the Pharisees uh, are reacting to that, trying to discredit him and his ministry. And basically, when they cannot deny the power, they are making the really uh, outrageous claim and uh, incredible claim that uh, Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan. This would, in fact, make Jesus the son of Satan instead of the son of God. And so Jesus is now in the midst of a great confrontation with them and he has already talked to them about how to, to stand in the face of such demonstration of God's power, such evident manifest power of God. Satan is not going to divide his house, but to call the work of the Holy Spirit uh, the work of Satan is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That kind of a- attitude maintained will never be forgiven. Now we pick up in verse 38, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest, and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. While he was still talking to the multitude, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. God and Father, we thank You for the great gift and heritage of Your Word. It is food, it is light, it is truth. We know it is firm, we know it is reliable, we can trust it. Lord, we pray now that You would bring Your Word to us by Your Spirit, that it would do its manifold work in us, that we would love You, that we would be Your faithful disciples, Your people. We bear faithful witness to You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So after Jesus has uh, told the the Pharisees that they're in danger of uh, committing blasphemy against the Spirit and that kind of attitude of maintain will never be forgiven, we have then the response of the Pharisees. They demand a sign, and of course the scribes are involved here at this point as well. So they demand a sign. They want Jesus to authenticate Himself through an appropriate miracle, if he is who he claims to be. Now, it's not wrong in and of itself to ask for a sign. Jesus at one point says, look, if you, if you don't believe because of what I'm telling you, then believe because of the signs. If nothing else, believe because of the signs. Signs had a place. God has used signs in the Old Testament and now even uh, with the life of Jesus as an authenticating uh, factor to show This is my son, or this is my true prophet. Of course, it was always possible for uh, for a false prophet to work a sign by another power. But it's not wrong in and of itself to ask for a sign. But here Jesus refuses to comply, knowing that their request is not sincere. Jesus knows that he has done more than enough signs, including the healing of the demon-possessed man who was blind and mute that he just did. That's just set the context for this whole discussion. He's done more than enough signs and miracles, in response to which now the Pharisees are accusing him of doing miracles, casting out demons by the power of Satan. So that's their response to all the signs Jesus has already done. Jesus knows The problem with the scribes and Pharisees is not a lack of evidence. It's not a lack of evidence. It's not a lack of information. Their problem is hardened unbelief. The more light they receive, the more revelation they receive, the more signs they see, the more they double down, the more hardened they become. And their unbelief is fueled by envy, as we will see when we get to the, the end of the story. It's only an evil and adulterous generation that asks for a sign under such circumstances. And Jesus says that the only sign that will be given is the sign of His own death and resurrection, which He calls the sign of Jonah the prophet. Of course, we know that this sign of signs will itself be met largely with hardened unbelief from Israel. As Jesus points out in Luke chapter 16, In the story of Lazarus and the rich man, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, in other words, if they don't hear the scriptures, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Uh, We often just naturally think that if somebody could be given enough information, if they could be given enough evidence, if they could read the right book, hear the right tape, if we could present things in just the right way or get them to come and have just the right experience, surely they would uh, believe in Christ and become a Christian. But Jesus makes it very plain that it is only the power of God, it is only the work of the Holy Spirit that can uh, open somebody up, that can change their heart, that can awaken and quicken faith within them so that they see It's not a matter of light, it's a matter of seeing the light. It's not a matter of light, it's a matter of receiving the light. Jesus says, look, if they don't believe the Scriptures, they won't believe even if one rises from the dead. And we know that to be true. Jesus did rise from the dead. Then in verses 41 through 43, Jesus goes on the offensive here. And He accuses this generation, as represented by its leadership, the scribes and Pharisees, He accuses them with lacking even the faith of ancient Nineveh and the queen of the south. Nineveh uh, was the city, the great city that Jonah preached at, and they repented. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. The queen of the south traveled a vast distance to come and hear the wisdom of Solomon. Of course, that is the wisdom of God. And they did so based on far less information... Far less authentication than the present generation had received from Jesus, the Son of God, the one who was greater than Jonah and greater than Solomon. Now, that statement by Jesus, one is here who is greater than Jonah, and one greater than Solomon here, that is continuing on the theme that we have seen Matthew showing us throughout his book how Jesus is true Israel, and He's reliving and fulfilling and superseding the greatness and the lives of all of her great leaders. He's already shown Himself to be the greater Moses and the greater David. And now Jesus says, in effect, I am the greater Jonah, and I am the greater Solomon. And He claims that this generation will be condemned precisely because it is more hardened in its unbelief than the ancient Gentiles of Nineveh and the ancient Gentile queen of the south. you are more hardened than they are. Now, What Jesus here is really implicitly reaffirming is what we saw recently when we were studying evangelism together. <clears throat> it's not what people don't know but what they do know and have rejected that will condemn them on the last day. People are not judged on the light that they never received, but on how they responded to the light they have received. And everyone has received some light. Indeed, every, everybody's received would be amazed at how much. But here's the point. If anyone responds to the light they have However small it may be, if it's just a candle of light, if they respond, if they come to that light, God will make sure they get more light. And if they respond to that light, God will make sure that they get more light. If they keep responding to the light, God will draw them to Christ. The sovereign God, one way or another, will bring them to Christ. That's not the problem, though. People turn away from the light. That's what Jesus said. He said, this is the condemnation. The people love darkness rather than light. They hate the light. They turn away from the light. And he who runs from a candle cannot argue that he would have come to a bonfire. That is what results in judgment on the last day. Now, uh, Nineveh and the Queen of the South had far less light than the generation that Jesus is ministering to. Far less. But they responded to that light. This generation has far more light, but they're turning away from it. Indeed, they're rejecting it. They're attacking it. They're covering it over in every way. And that is what will condemn them. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Then in verses 43 through 45, Jesus suddenly starts talking about A demon-possessed man, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man. And when he starts talking this way, he's illustrating the condition of the current generation. He's not really changing topics. He's changing from a description to an illustration. And he starts talking about a demon-possessed man. Now, what would immediately leap to mind for everyone who was standing there listening to him is the demon-possessed, blind, and mute man that Jesus just cast the demon out of. That's what they just saw. That's immediately what is going to come to mind. And everybody is going to understand that Jesus now is comparing Israel, particularly as characterized by her leadership, comparing Israel to that demon-possessed man. And Jesus is basically saying this evil and adulterous generation basically has an evil spirit, and therefore is incapable of seeing or speaking the truth. It is blind. It is mute. It cannot see the truth. It cannot speak the truth. Now, Jesus is not saying that every Israelite is possessed by a demon, but He is saying that the nation as a whole, particularly as characterized by her leadership, is governed collectively by an evil and adulterous spirit. Um, It it does explain, though, I think, why there is so much demon possession encountered during Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. And and some of it, you notice, is encountered in the synagogues. It's a picture. That is a picture of the state of Israel as a whole. And so Jesus uses this demon-possessed man as an analogy. If this man having been cleansed of the evil spirit by Jesus, if that man does not turn to Jesus, his house will sit empty. And so the evil spirit, finding no rest, will come back to the house. He calls this man a house. He will come back to the house and find it all cleaned up and vacant. And then he's calling call seven of his buddies, even more wicked than himself, and they're all going to move in so that the last state of this man is worse than the first. Now, the implications here are profound. Jesus, notice what Jesus is assuming. Jesus is assuming that a person is not supposed to be the only one occupying their house. Okay? Jesus is assuming that a person is not supposed to be the only one occupying the house of their personhood, their body. For that person, because that that man still is in his own body, right? The man is still in his own body. The demon's been cast out, but Jesus says the house is empty. But the man is there. So for a person to be the only one occupying their house, their body, is for their house to really be empty. The implication here is that the Spirit of God is supposed to be there too. When you think about it, the indwelling of the Spirit is really essential of what it means to be created in the image of God. It's what it means to be created as a child of God from the beginning. It means to have the Spirit of God in you, you. And you start seeing this profound implication that we're not supposed to be the only one in here. God's spirit is supposed to be in here too. For God's spirit to not be here, for us to be the only ones here, is really to be a vacant house. And so uh, for this formerly demon-possessed man to be the only one occupying his house is for his house to be empty and vacant. So what use is it to have an evil squatter, thrown out of your house, and to get your house all cleaned up, straightened up, if you're not going to invite God, the one for whom your house was intended, to move in. If the man does not repent when God delivers him the first time, God is going to give him over to his own wickedness, and he's going to end up worse off than he started. And so the the theological implications here are really quite profound. So shall it be with this wicked generation, Jesus says in verse 45. Just as Jesus cast the evil spirit from the blind and mute man, so Jesus has been driving the evil spirit out of Israel with his miracles, with his preaching, with his ministry, uh, drawing disciples to him. But if Israel does not respond, and embrace Jesus. If Israel does not invite Jesus in, they will end up with seven evil spirits much worse than the first. In other words, the evil and adulterous spirit that's is affecting Israel is going to run to seed. It's going to go full forebore and bear full fruit. Now, it's interesting that as a historical matter, I mean Jesus is not just talking in concepts As a historical matter, this is exactly what we see with Israel between the time of Jesus' death in about 30 AD and the time of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. At the time of Jesus' trial, the leadership is going to disingenuously accuse Him of stirring up rebellion against Rome and say that Rome is going to come and take away their homeland. That's what they say. This man, you know, it's expedient. Remember, it's expedient for one to die for a nation. It says, this man is going to cause Rome to come down here and clamp down on us and take away our homeland. So they basically accuse him of being an insurrectionist, which a lot of the would-be messiahs were back in that day, the Christ figures, because they essentially saw Christ simply as a military leader to turn the tables on Rome being the latest empire that was holding uh, Israel under their hegemony. And, um, and so that's the way Christs were seen. And so they accuse Jesus of being an insurrectionist while the leadership uh, postures as the friend of Caesar. Remember? Uh, Pilate wants to let him go. They say Whoever makes himself a king is, is no friend of Caesar. And this man makes him out to the king. They're sending, that's a high inside fastball saying, we're going to make this known to Caesar. What this guy is saying, he's claiming to be a king and you let him go. We'll let that trickle its way up to Rome. Okay? So they start applying political pressure and they say, Jesus and, and, and Pilate says, will you have me crucify the king of the Jews? They said, we have no king but Caesar. We're Caesar's friends. He's he's an insurrectionist. He's Caesar's enemy. Now, of course, this is complete hypocrisy. It's completely backwards. Jesus was completely innocent of those charges, as the leadership well knew. When He cleansed the temple shortly before His crucifixion, Jesus did so because the leadership had turned God's temple, which was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, into a den of thieves. Now, we hear den of thieves and we just think they're greedy. They're greedy for money. And so you got merchants and so forth uh, selling there. That's not what the, the, the language means. And that's not what's going on. The language means really a haven of brigands or a haven of insurrectionists. The problem was not with selling sacrificial animals there at the temple. That was necessary because people would often travel great distances to come there and present an offering. And to, to bring an animal with you and to keep it spotless over all of that distance was very difficult. And so it was necessary that they'd be able to buy a qualified animal there at the temple. That wasn't the problem. The problem is, is there in the courts of the Gentile and so forth. And, of course, we're already at a problem with that because you read about the construction of the tabernacle of the temple. There's nothing about a court of the Gentiles. And there's nothing about a court of the women. That's all been man-made stuff that's come up since. In fact, God emphasizes when the temple and tabernacle is being built, that there shall be one law, one law for the Israelites among you, and for the alien and the stranger who is among you. A Gentile could come, come to the temple and present an offering. To the Lord and worship there exactly the same as an Israelite. That's what God set up. The feast, He says, you shall include the strangers and the aliens with you at the feast. So there was nothing about pushing the Gentiles off into some court or pushing the women off into some court. Uh, you see examples in the Old Testament of families coming to worship together. Consider Hannah's family, the mother of Samuel. She comes with her husband uh, and that family and it's clear they're all there worshiping together. There's not one court for men and one court for women. That's, uh, none of that did God design. So we already have a problem when we have a court of the Gentiles because they're being pushed away, which is not what God intended. He intends to draw in, not to push them away the difference between the Israelite, the Jew and who, who had all of the cleanness code and all of those things on them, and the Gentile was not the difference between believer and unbeliever in the Old Testament. That was not the essential difference because you had many Gentile unbelievers. Consider Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, who's a believer and who actually counsels uh, Moses. The difference... Uh, was not fundamentally belief or unbelief. The difference was priestly believer versus non-priestly believer. The priestly believers, the Israelites, took on the obligation in a stylized way of showing the life of God to the world. And Israel essentially is set up like a land stage, you could call it that. It's kind of like uh, Colonial Williamsburg, you go, it's a geographic place where you go, and there's a certain life that is set up there, and you can walk around in it, and you can see it. And, and you know, those who um, are there working presumably believe in the life that they're showing forth, right? And when they believe in that life, then they're happy to take on the added obligations of being one of the actors, right? So... Uh, But there's special rules. If you're one of the actors, there's special rules about how you live and how your house is and your property and how you dress and all of those things. And if you get it and if you love it, you're happy to take on that burden for the benefit of the world, for the benefit of everybody who comes. If you lose that love, if you lose that vision, if you lose that love for the God who is behind it, those additional burdens of being one of the actors, one of the priestly believers, is going to become like a bunch of rules and a bunch of burdens and so forth, and you're going to end up just like the older son in the prodigal son story. I've been working for you for all of these years, and here he comes, and he's going to be received. You know, and what does the father say? My son... You're always with me. Everything I have is yours. Look at how the boy views it as an employee. All these burdens, all I've been doing. Look at the truth. What's the truth? No, it's not. You're not an employee. You're a son. And this is not a wage. It's an inheritance. It's free. It's free. And so that's what's going on. And that is the difference. So the difference in the Old Testament is between Israelite priestly believers who take on those obligations, like the cleanness code and other stuff, to demonstrate and to teach, not only for yourself and your family, but to teach for the world. Whereas you could be a Gentile, you could live in Israel, you can worship at the tabernacle, you can believe in the God of Israel, you can come to the feast and not have any of the cleanness code apply to you because you're not one of the actors. Now, you can't own property there, just like you can't just own property in Colonial Williamsburg, because it's a stage. That's why. It's not a normal neighborhood. It's a stage. You have to be one of the actors to own here. But anyway, that shows you the difference. It's not between believer and unbeliever. In the New Testament, with the New Covenant, all believers are priestly believers, okay? But because we don't have a carved out geographic stage that people have to come to to see the life of God in a typological way, um, we don't have the cleanest code and all that kind of stuff. What we do have is the obligation to live out the life of God, or as Jesus would say here, to do the will of the Father. We're all priestly believers. We all have the privilege of living out the life of God by doing His will will. So anyway, what's going on with Jesus cleansing the temple is that where are all these places where they're selling all these animals and everything? Well, it's all in the court of the Gentiles. Now, not only have they pushed the Gentiles off into some separate court away, but you can't even get in there because it's all the merchants and everything in there selling the animals. That's the problem. And Jesus says, you've turned it. It's supposed to be a house of prayer, notice, for all nations. You've turned it into a haven of insurrectionists. This is all about Israel. This is all about nationalism. This is all about Israel politically, Israel turning the tables on Rome, Israel out-roaming the Romans, out-Babyloning the Babylons, you know, I mean, but if you, the problem is, is if you get that, what difference does it make? What difference does it make whether it's Babylon or Medo-Persia or Greece or Rome or some new nationalistic Israeli uh, empire imposed at the point of a spear? It makes no difference to those who are living under it. Imagine if you lived under Hitler for a few years. And then somebody said, I'm going to get you out of this going to have a new leader. His name's Stalin. And after a few years of Stalin, they say, we're getting you out of this. We're going to have a change. Change. Have you ever heard that? Change. You have a new leader. His name's Mao Zedong. Does it make any difference to you? Hitler? Stalin? Mao? Any differences are just in the decoration. There's there's no difference. And that's the way it is with these empires of man. And so Jesus is standing against that. So Jesus is innocent of these charges. The leadership, in fact, is going to become increasingly guilty of being uh, insurrectionists. About 67 AD, this whole spirit of insurrection and revolution is really going to take hold of Israel. And she's going to openly revolt against Rome. And as the armies of Rome slowly close in, uh, in 70 A.D., the leadership of Israel is going to hold up in the temple, and they're going to become more and more fevered and demonic in their rebellion and in their delusion that God will save them. He has to save us because this is his temple. He has to save us. When in fact, God was the one judging them. God was the one judging him. Because, again, the temple is a house, right? We talked about this man as a house. God moving out. The house is vacant. God desolates. God leaves his temple. His house is vacant. What's going to happen? Something is going to be coming in, and what's coming in is not going to be good. Okay. So Jesus is against all of that whole spirit not because he was a friend of Rome. Jesus, in fact, constituted the greatest threat of all time to Caesar's empire. But the kingdom of God that he brought is not anti-political, but it is definitely anti-politics as usual. Because the kingdom of God that Jesus brought brings a true revolution, a true transformation of man from within by the power of God's Spirit, which ultimately results in kings and nations, empires, bowing the knee, confessing Jesus as Lord gladly, not at the point of a gun, and doing, as Jesus says at the end of our text, the will of the Father in heaven. And, of course, as they do so over time, the forms and expressions of politics and economics and cultures change to better fit the substance of life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But here, Jesus is making the fundamental point that if Israel does not invite Him in, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, they're going to end up possessed by a spirit far more evil than the one that is currently afflicting and affecting them. Either way, they cannot stay the same. They will not stay the same. They will not be able to maintain a vacant house. Either God will occupy it or a multitude of evil spirits will occupy it. Now, this is what sets the context for verse 46, where suddenly Jesus' family comes and stands outside seeking to speak with Him. Now, this seems to us like this is an interruption A deviation, a digression, a change of subject. It's not at all. Not at all. This is all setting the context for this episode with Jesus' family. They're seeking to speak with him. Now, remember what Jesus has just been talking about. He's just been talking about a house, he's been talking about a man as a house, right? This demon possessed man, what's going to happen to him? Then he says, so, will be, so it will be with this evil generation. So now he's talking about a generation or he's talking about Israel as a house. All right? Now that's very common. This would not have confused uh, his listeners at all because they were very commonly uh, to, accustomed to thinking in those terms. One of the most common terms that God has for his people in the Old Testament is the house of Israel. You hear it again and again and again, the whole house of Israel sometimes called the house of David. So the nation is called a house. But now you have a man being called a house. Of course, you will have, you will have a household or a family being called a house, the house of Jesse, house of David, house, of this house, that house. And so you have this whole analogy of persons or people collectively to being a house, all right? So, and of course, a house implies someone who lives in the house. A house implies a household. A house implies a family. And you can refer to one as the other. I know in the South, um, uh, people, it's a colloquialism there. If people have to go, they'll say, I'm going to the house. Um, That means I'm going home, I'm going to my family, going to the house. And so this whole idea of house, household, family, it's all ways of referring to the same thing. And this goes over into the New Testament, if you think about it, okay? The church is called by Paul the household of God. He tells Timothy, I'm writing all these things so you know how to conduct yourself in the household of God. Okay, so the church is the household of God. We know that the people of God are called the family of God. The church collectively is called the bride of Christ. You know, the uh, Christians individually are referred to often as children, sons and daughters. So you have all of this imagery going. And Paul in 1 Corinthians tells the Corinthians that both collectively and individually, they are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He says to the Corinthians, the Holy Spirit occupies you, indwells you. That's what the temple is, where the presence of God is, indwells you individually. Your body, he says, is the temple of the Lord. And then he also talks to the Corinthians as a church, as a local church. And he says, you, you all, y'all together, all y'all, are the temple of God. Because the Holy Spirit occupies you collectively and individually. So you see this whole idea of an individual being a house, of a family being a house, of God you know, indwelling the individual, God indwelling the local church, and all of this. This is, this is the imagery. This is what uh, has been the topic of discussion. Of course, this all concerns the family of God. And so the question naturally arises, what is the true nature of, of the household of God. What is the true nature of the family of God? Is it a blood family or is the basis of the family of God something else? And that is really Jesus's point here. The basis is the Spirit of God. Now Jesus doesn't expressly mention the Spirit here but he does so implicitly by mentioning the primary fruit of the Spirit which is doing the will of the Father in heaven. Nobody does that apart from the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit is, that is what we find. So that's what he's talking about. What is the basis of the family of God? Now, this is an important theme. John the Baptist talked about this same theme when he was preaching out by the Jordan, because when the uh, leaders particularly are coming to him, he warns them against a certain way of thinking. He says, don't begin to say to yourself, Abraham is our father. Translation, don't begin to say that God's family is a blood family. Don't begin to say that you're one of God's people because you came through a certain bloodline. Because that's not what it's about. It's about the spirit which produces faith, which produces doing the will of God. That's the way it's always been. And John the Baptist is warning them. Why is he warning them against this? Because that was a big problem. That's the way they tended to think. I'm an Israelite. I have Abraham's blood in my veins. I've been circumcised. This is what the fundamental constituting factor of the family of God. John the Baptist says, not so. Jesus is saying, not so. It is not blood it is the spirit it is doing the will of the father in heaven now this goes back to the promise of the new testament the new covenant back in the old testament in the most there's a number of passages but the most famous is jeremiah 31:31 31, 31. there god promises to make a new covenant with the house of israel a covenant that's not like the one that he made with Israel at Sinai. So we're thinking, okay, new terms, new right and wrong, new all that kind of stuff, so it's different. He said, no, 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 it's not different like that. It's different in this this way because Israel broke the last one. So it's not going to be like that one because it's not going to be broken. Okay, And here's why. Here's why. This is what distinguishes the new covenant. He says, I'm going to write my law on their hearts and I'm gonna put my spirit within them and then they will be my people and I will be their God in other words that that phrase that covenant sum up phrase they will be my people I will be their God it will be really fulfilled God's people because his spirit is there with the law there so in other words God is gonna form a new household God is gonna form a new family not based on God's law on tablets of stone and his spirit in a temple of stone. But based on, it's a new household based on his law on the hearts of his people and his spirit within them. Now, let me say, this does not mean that in the Old Testament they didn't have the spirit. You know, and now we have the spirit, they didn't have the spirit, we have the spirit. You have to distinguish between individuals and God's people as a whole. When you look through the Old Testament, you see many people who clearly had the Spirit. Clearly. Uh, David, look at all the Psalms. I mean, clearly the Spirit is there. All the great leaders, Moses and so forth, they, they had the Spirit. You know, Hannah, Elizabeth, and so on. They clearly had the Spirit. But when you look at God's people as a whole, if you look at the whole nation as a person, which is the way Paul talks about them in Galatians. He said when God's people, when they were a little child, God treated them this way. But now that they've come of age, so he, he analogizes them to a person. If you look at God's people as a whole in the Old Testament, you don't see the life of the Spirit. You see God's people as a whole always trending away from God, always trending downward, always trending toward idolatry and so forth. And so uh, if you did it like a stock market graph, and you do the plot line, you know how the stock market goes like this. It bounces up and down like a Geiger counter, you know. Um, And uh, not a Geiger counter, a seismograph. That's what I mean. It bounces up and down like a seismograph. And so, uh, but you do a plot line. If you plot line the Old Testament, it's down. Sometimes it goes up, you got high points, you got David there, you know, you got Samuel, you got some high points. But the, the plot line, the trend line is clearly down, 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 down to crucifying the Son of God. That's as down as you can get. That's as far as you can go. There is no further. And what he's saying now, God's people as a whole in the New Testament, he's not saying they're not going to have any more problems. They're not going to wrestle with sins anymore. But he's saying you take God's people as a whole. In the New Testament, the plot line is going to be up. The plot line is going to be up. Okay? So God is forming a new family, a new household of God based on Jesus and the Spirit. Now, God prefigured this in the Old Testament. That's what he'd do when he'd raise up a Moses or he'd raise up a David. David. Basically, he'd say, this is my anointed one. He would give them his spirit. He would give them his word. He would give them the truth. They're the ones leading the people in the right way. And he calls his people to respond to him by responding to this leader. You respond to me by responding to Moses. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul calls Israel the body of Moses. He says they were baptized into Moses in the Red Sea. So you see... Moses is the Christ figure. So God is saying, you come to me, you respond to me, you hear my word, you respond to my spirit and follow me by rallying around Moses and listening to my word through him and obeying him. The Israelites who don't do that, and there were a number, they're they're cut out. So you can see even back then, it really wasn't fundamentally about blood. And we know that even when Israel came out of Egypt, there was a mixed multitude. You find that little phrase in there that came out with them. Who's the mixed multitude? It's a bunch of Egyptians. It's a bunch of Egyptians who believed in the God of Israel, who saw what was going on, and they said, this is the true God, not, not Pharaoh. They believed they came out with Israel. They're the mixed multitude. Okay, So they end up, over time, becoming part of Israel, whereas the Israelites who have the heart of Egyptians are cut out. So what is really the basis of God's people, even at the time of Moses? Is it blood? It's faith. It's faith, even then. And so now Jesus, in one final and definitive way, is bringing that to completion, forming up a new family of God. Jesus, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. It's not a type now. It's not Moses pointing to somebody. It's not David pointing to somebody. This is God in the flesh. The one who was speaking to Moses, telling Moses what to do, him, he's here now in the flesh. And he's finally forming up the family of God based on the spirit and faith once and for all. So, now this passage has caused a lot of confusion. And so let me say, Jesus is not at all putting down the family here. He's not at all denigrating the family. He is rather exalting and emphasizing the basis of the true family of God, the church, as a family that is not based on blood but on the Spirit of God, with the prime fruit being that its members do the will of the Father and delight to do so. Now, what this does mean... God has created the family. God has created the family of God. He's created the church. If it comes down to a divergence of ways, and I'm not talking about little stuff. you know, I'm not talking about, oh, they... I'm talking about fundamentals of the faith, fundamentals of the Word of God. If it comes down to a divergence of ways between one's blood family and the church, the household of God, whom Paul calls the pillar and ground of the truth, to whom the faiths have once for all been delivered, if it comes down to that kind of a divergence, then you've got to go with the household that's based on faith. You've got to go with the household that's based on the Spirit of God. It takes precedence. And this is what Jesus was getting at back in chapter 10 when He said, "'I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household.'" He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now Jesus, his first words here have a lot of shock value, and that's what he's trying to do. I have come to set a man against his father. Well, that's not actually Jesus' goal, but that's what's going to happen. He gives us the point after he gives us this shocking language of setting... uh, uh, family members against one another, dividing, tearing apart households. He gives us the point. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Okay? Jesus is not saying, don't love your father, don't love your mother, don't love your children, don't love your parents. He's not saying that. He's saying that His family, the family of the Spirit, takes precedence. Spirit, faith, always take precedence. So Jesus is not denigrating the family here. We know that Jesus, for example, while He's on the cross, took care to fulfill His family obligation as a son to care for His mother. He says to His mother, John is standing there, He says to His mother, Behold your son. And He says to John, Behold your mother. Basically saying, John, I'm dying. I'm not going to be here. I have a duty to my mother. You take that duty. You become her son. You care for her. We know that Jesus slammed the scribes and the Pharisees for failing to care for parents. He slammed them for their traditions they had come up with. And through their tradition, setting aside the fifth commandment to honor father and mother. Because they came up with this rule and said, well, you honor father and mother doesn't just mean you're swell, mom and dad. You know, I hope you're doing well. It means you take care of your mom and your dad as they're getting older, as they took care of you when you were young. That's what honor, honor, honor starts in the heart, but it doesn't stay there. It's tangible, Okay. And so the Pharisees had come up with this thing that said that, yeah, you do have an obligation to honor, to care for, to provide for your parents, but if you pledge all of your money and your possessions or whatever you do pledge to the temple, if you pledge it, even though you haven't given it, it's kind of like some reverse mortgage thing. If you pledge it, even though you haven't given it, then you, oh, see, you don't really own it. Even though you're still living in a house, and enjoying all the stuff it's not really yours, it belongs to the temple. Sorry, Mom and Dad, you're swell. You're great. You're the greatest. But, I'm so holy. It's all pledged to the temple. It all belongs to the temple because I'm so holy. Are you proud of your son? Aren't you proud of your daughter? So, that's what they were doing. And Jesus blasted the Pharisees uh, and the scribes for that. We know that Jesus restored the high place of marriage by cutting through the traditions of the elders which allowed a man to divorce his wife for any cause. And he returned marriage to God's creational purposes. So we see Jesus again and again not only upholding his obligations truly within family, but we see him restoring, restoring marriage, restoring family, restoring parent-child relationships to what God intended originally. And thus, when we see the apostles and their epistles speak to husbands, to wives, to children, and they, when they make, when the apostles make the prime proving ground for leadership in the church, the fulfillment of one's duties in the family, they're just building on the foundation that Jesus laid in His ministry. So Jesus is not denigrating the family here. He's saving the family. You know, if you think about it, from the beginning, even before the fall, blood families, like the family Adam and Eve were starting, were created to be part of the family of God, part of the worshiping community. And even though in the Garden of Eden you only have two people, you have all three fundamental covenant structures present there in Adam and Eve. You have Adam and Eve, two individuals. You obviously have a family because they're husband and wife. But you also have in seed form the church. You have the worshiping community. That's them. It's going to be their kids, and they have more and more kids, and kids have kids, and so on and so on and so forth. You're going to have to have uh, more uh, local places of worship and so forth. But the the family of God, the worshiping community, is there too. And so is the civic community. You know, Over time, as they get more and more and more and more and more, and as they develop culture, as God... uh, uh, commanded them to do, even though there's no crime because there's no fall, right? No fall, perfect society, no crime. You still are going to have to decide whether to drive on the right side of the road or the left. You're still going to have to decide where red means stop or go. You're still going to have to decide whether it's a good idea to have a factory in the middle of a neighborhood. You have all kinds of things that people will come (coughs) together to decide in a civic way, which have nothing to do with crime the fall. So you see, all of these are implicit and present there with Adam and Eve in the garden. So when Adam falls, it's not just the individuals who have fallen. It's not just the blood family who has fallen. Obviously, that's true. The church has fallen too. The worshiping community has fallen too. And so has the civic community, which is why we see individuals, families, worshiping communities... And civic communities all shot through with the results of the fall. And Jesus is resurrecting all of it. The kingdom of God is not a resurrection of part of it. It's a resurrection of all of it. It's not just individuals in their hearts. It's the whole worshiping community. It's the church is resurrected in Christ. But it's not just that. It's the whole civic community as well. The kingdom of God covers everything. It covers all of life, and that is what Jesus is saving and resurrecting. And so God created the blood family and the family of God, the worshiping family, to be best friends. He created uh, the church or 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 the household of God, the worshiping family, to nurture blood families by teaching them from the Word of God, leading them in worship, building them up, nurturing them. And he created blood families also to nurture the church. One of the verses in the Old Testament when God's talking about the way things really should be is he talks about how your your sons are going to raise up and they're going to nurture you. And he's speaking to Jerusalem. He's speaking to a model of the church. So the family nurtures the church by giving of time and resources, and also by having children and raising them up in the one true faith. And so the family and the family of God were created to be best friends. And I'll tell you today, sometimes I, sometimes I see segments of Christianity that want to put one above the other. They want to lift up the family and put it in a place of priority over the church. And you can get an overblown uh, patriarchalism going on there, and you can get an overblown matriarchalism. Some of the most patriarchal families I've ever seen have also been the most matriarchal families I've ever seen. It all has to do with who effectively is really running things. But that's not, that's not right. That's not right. Okay? I've also seen uh, churches where the church is put into such a position that families really are kind of denigrated. They're viewed with suspicion, you know, like there's some threat to the church. And sometimes the church is viewed as a threat to the family. That's non-Trinitarian. That's the problem with all that. That's Unitarian thinking. It's like, okay, what's it going to be, the Father or the Son, the Son or the Spirit? Well, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. You know, and so it's not what? What is it? Family? Is it church? What is it? Civic community? The state? What? It's like look, it's it's all three that God created under the lordship of Christ. They're meant to be best friends. And today, you cannot have a godly family for very long without a godly church to nurture it. You won't have one for very long. You cannot have a godly church for very long without godly families to build it up. And so the two go together. We stand and fall together under the Lordship of Christ. And that's what really Jesus is saying. Fundamentally, His life, His salvation, His resurrection power is not based on blood or any other thing like that. It's based on spirit, faith, and doing the will of the Father. In fact, when people do the will of the Father, usually the first place it really shows up is in the family. And when they don't do the will of the Father, the first place it shows up is in the family. That's usually the way it goes. Well, let me just close with this thought and application for us today. This touch tone of doing the will of the Father, notice how Jesus makes that the key. And He calls this, He said this was an evil and and what that means, adulterous, you're thinking about that, they're, rejo- they're rejecting a monogamous spiritual relationship with God. That's, what, that's why it's called adultery. And evil, they're not doing the will of the Father. And because they did not embrace Christ, their house was sitting empty. It was ripe for the taking. And more and more evil spirits were going to take control. An insane demonic spirit was going to come in and run to seed in Israel over the ne- next 40 years. Now, I think that we're seeing many of the same characteristics in our society today in America, more and more. I mean, this has been quite a year. We had our president tell us that he is favor of homosexual marriage, legitimizing that. Uh, Even though in the past he said he wasn't, now he says he is. And just recently, just within the last week, has declared, not after congressional hearings or anything like that, but has declared that women will be going into combat. And I said to myself, I said, now, you know, the real rub on this thing is going to come the next time they have to have a draft. If they start drafting women. And sure enough, I heard interviewed uh, on a news show an admiral. He's a retired admiral, but he's heavily involved in all this stuff. Of course, he's in favor of it. And he was asked, so, I mean, would you draft women? He said, absolutely, because we want the best. We want the best and the brightest out there, you know, in our armed forces. And so there's no... you know, in Israel at that time, there was just kind of this insane racing. Any argument is just brushed aside with great impatience and disdain. And do you get the feeling now that our, in our culture is just with great breakneck speed just rushing down this road? And anything said to the contrary, no matter what source it comes from, is brushed aside. And, you know, it's not, no debate is even engaged. Anything body who disagrees is really just kind of shouted down. Shouted down and disdained, brushed aside. And you get this same kind of feeling. It's always very interesting that all of the real flashpoints and all of the real um, uh, key manifestations of this kind of spirit are all sexual. They're all sexual. They have to do with gender, they have to do with abortion, they have to do with sex. They have to do with homosexuality. They have to do with marriage. They have to do with family. They have to do with all of that kind of stuff. There's all kinds of manifestations of this adulterous spirit which rejects a monogamy with the one true God. There's all kinds of manifestation of it, but this seems like the key flashpoints, the key manifestations are always sexual. Well, that makes sense when you realize that our... The husband-wife relationship, which is that sex doesn't go back to some kind of state of nature where everybody's running around naked having sex with one another and then all of a sudden somebody came up one day and said, we've got to have some rules and started opposing marriage. That's not the way it started. It started with God creating a man in his image and a woman in his image and bringing them together. Monogamy is the starting point. Why? Because we're created for a monogamous spiritual relationship with God. And the monogamy that God creates in marriage reflects directly that spiritual relationship, that monogamy. And that's why once you reject monogamy with the one true God spiritually, monogamy and and sexually is not going to stay for very long. It will not. It will not because they are connected and this is why Paul in Romans 1, you notice when he talks about the history of mankind turning away from God, even though they knew God, they did not honor him God or give him thanks, but they came futile in their speculation. Out of all the manifestations of this continually turning away from God that Paul could give, everyone that he does give is sexual. It's because the two are connected. And so we see the same thing today. Now, let me just say this. What would Jesus say to us? Well, we live inside a vortex, a mess. Uh, We're heading, uh, it's getting getting crazy. It's getting crazy. It really is. But I think that Jesus would mostly talk to us. I mean, them, they, you know, it's kind of like salt and meat. You know, you're the salt of the earth. But Jesus, the meat, is just going to pot. It's rancid. It already stinks like crazy. It's just going downhill crazy. Is that a meat problem or is that a salt problem? I think Jesus calls that a salt problem. And salt is us. Salt is us. And so Jesus is always talking to his own people. Notice he's talking to his own people here in this word. I think he would be saying to us this The essence of the Father is the authority of the Father to name. Ephesians 3, Paul said, I bow my knees to the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now, naming means that the Father is the one who gives us our identity. He's the one who gives us our identity, our meaning. And therefore, our whole happiness and fulfillment and everything is related to that naming that the Father does of us. Man, woman, father, mother, husband, wife, son, daughter, boss, employee, and so forth. These namings. We have a generation that is getting demonic in its hatred and its rage against the Father. Just God in general, the Father, and the fact that he names. And in his rage is demanding the power of everybody to be able to name themselves. Not just once, as many times as you want. And so you see people in this emptiness and in this rat race remaking themselves and renaming themselves over and over and over again. But this is a rage against God the Father. It's not enough for us to see that and know it's wrong. We're the ones who are called To love being named by the Father. And I think this is what Jesus would talk to us about that we're not where we should be in terms of loving being named by Him. Man, woman, husband, wife, father, mother, son, daughter, all of that. You know, it's not enough for just to say, that's wrong what you're doing out there. That will never cut it, that will never do anything. We have to love being named by God. We have to live out that love. We have to have marriages that are beautiful because you have two people who love being named by God the Father and they love one another. We have to have that to show the world. There is no power in saying what you're doing is wrong, what you're doing is crazy. There's no power in that. We have to be the ones who love to be named by God, who love what He has made us, who embrace it, who understand that no matter how counterintuitive it may seem from time to time, our happiness and our fulfillment lies precisely in doing the will of the Father. It's not just His glory. It is our good. It is our blessing as well. So I commend that to you. Let's take that on. Let's take that conviction. To ourselves. Let's stand convicted for falling short in that area, and let's ask God to, to bless us, that we will serve Him, be His true family. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.